0: Can I start our service with a word of encouragement? Is that okay? Can I, can I just start our service with like one of the most encouraging things that we can hear? Are you ready for it? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no Deceit. Can I get an amen on that? Church, is that all we got, Cornerstone? And we're a gospel lighthouse, a gospel-believing church. I don't know that you, did you hear what I said? Did you? Okay, you know, in, in Hollywood, which isn't that far away, they do something that's called take two. Here we go. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen, a resounding Amen. And what a blessing those two verses are just on their own. And the reality is, is that we get to study that this psalm in its entirety this Sunday and next. and. Some of you might be curious as to why I arrived on Psalm 32. And recently, with finishing the book of Titus, I asked the elders, I said, would it be okay if I just preach some passages that weigh heavy on my heart? And they were like, of course, go for it. And I wanted to share Psalm 32 because it's a deeply personal psalm to me. You know, whenever I struggle with sin and and things are difficult, in my own heart, and the recesses of my own heart, and I'm struggling with temptation and sin, the Lord is so gracious, and he's so faithful to pr- provide me a-, a place to go, and over the course of my walk, he's always led me to uh, two of my favorite psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and we are going to start the gospel of Mark, okay, and I've, Fitting month is March, okay? So we're going to eventually get there. We announce that. We're going to have an opportunity to uh, spend a lot of time in, in Mark. But um, uh, before we do, we want to we uh, spend some time just hearing some, some encouragement from Psalm 32, which will be this Sunday and next. And then the following Sunday after that, the weekend before Shepherds Conference, we're going to have a special guest here, uh, missionary David Beakley who is going to come and open up the word and then also share about his ministry second hour. So it's going to be a really encouraging time. Well, where does the Lord lead you? When you struggle with sin, when, when things are, you're, you're dealing with temptation, where in the word does the Lord direct your heart? You know, I think it's common for us to um, be geared towards the Psalms because we see uh, real people as they battled real issues with with sin, just like in the life of David, and that is why I believe that the Lord allows me to to go there because we can relate to the various lusts and struggles and the sins that they also dealt with. And the Psalms also point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must find the Lord Jesus there. And the reason why is because he found himself there. After his resurrection, when, uh, on the day, after His resurrection, he was walking with two of the disciples in Luke 24-27. And it shares that as Jesus walked with these two disciples on the day of his resurrection, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later that day, he appeared to other disciples... And it says in Luke 24:44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms concerning me. Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ and this includes the psalms as the Lord affirms. And the psalms are a blessing not just because they point us to the savior, but because many describe the life of the saved. They provide insights and qualities that those who have faith in Christ are to seek and to practice. And I hope today's message is a source of great encouragement and that the Lord helps us to see this. The title of the message is in the bulletin. It is Savoring the Sweetness of Forgiveness, which really reflects that which is found in Psalm 32. Maybe you're someone here today, and the truth is, you haven't spent much time in the Psalms. In fact, they, they might be a little unfamiliar to you. I want to share a little bit of background information that should help. The name Psalms means songs to an accompan- accompaniment of a stringed instrument. And it's actually taken from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the word that, the word that they used was psalmoi, plural for, for psalms. In the Hebrew, it, it uses the word tehillim, and it means praise songs." And the psalms were composed over a period of about 900 years, the earliest written by Moses in Psalm 90, and then uh, the latter written by various artists, or authors, not artists, uh, uh, various authors after the Babylonian captivity. And they're categorized into five books. And a good number of the psalms, 116 to be exact, you'll notice that they contain headings at the beginning of the psalms. And they they serve a dual purpose. Some are either historical, and and some are musical, or sometimes you see a combination of the two. The historical heading provides the context for which the psalmist was writing the psalm. The, The musical heading provides what instruments that are supposed to be played with the psalm. Okay? We get that. That's pretty straightforward. And most of the psalms are associated with David because he, he wrote most of them and that's the case which uh, for the psalm that we're going to study today. Another unique aspect of the psalms are the selah psalms. The word selah appears 74 times in 40 psalms. And this this word is meant uh, to be um, an interlude or a pause. It also makes for a beautiful girl's name. If you're, you know, Francis and Jennifer would testify to that, all right? It's a pretty, pretty cool uh, girl's name. But the Selah may have been used to inform musicians to change instruments or to call for both musicians and listeners to ponder the truth that had just been sung. And so whenever we're doing a public reading of the Psalms and we see Selah, we can honor the, the, the psalm and honor the, the, the word by either pausing there or we can even say the word. I want you to notice, and if you haven't turned there yet, now would be a good time, Psalm 32. Notice the heading there. It says, a psalm of David, a maskil. A maskil signifies instruction. So as we look at this heading of the psalm, it could literally say, a psalm of David giving instruction, And as we'll see, this psalm describes the blessings of his forgiveness as well as the pains of his conviction over his sin, as David deduces really from his own experience, instructions, and exhortations for believers to read and apply. Originally, my plan was to cover this psalm in one sermon today. And the psalms really are best understood when they're preached as a single unit. It's like our worship songs. You know, we can go ahead and uh, sing the church's one foundation, and we would be blessed if we just sang even one stanza of that song, would we not? We would. It would be encouraging. But by singing the whole song, right, we're able to see the depth and and the purpose behind the psalm. And so the same is true for the psalms, but for practical reasons, it's going to be good for us to Just cover verses 1 through 5 today, and the remaining verses next Sunday. Well, to get familiar with our passage, we're going to go ahead and read the entire psalm. And starting in verse 1, this is what it has to say. In the NAS, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel You, with my eye upon you, do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle, to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Well, as... The outline in your bulletin indicates Psalms 32 verses 1 through 5 provide three insights on repentance and confession so that you savor the sweetness of forgiveness. And repentance and confession lay the foundation for forgiveness. And we're going to see that in our sermon and, and develop that a little bit later. And David provides three insights that should encourage our hearts and help us to enjoy the sweet and savory fruit that flows out of forgiveness. They are as follows in your outline. Insight number one, be captivated by the blessings of repentance and confession. We're going to look at that in verses one and two. Insight number two, don't suffer in silence when you sin. We'll cover that in verses three and four. Insight number three, confess your sins for forgiveness. And that's going to, really be reflected in verse 5. Each of these insights that David provides, again, encourages us in a unique way. And let's start with insight number one. Be captivated by the blessing of repentance and confession. All of us are pretty familiar, I think, in our church, especially. The biblical literacy is high. So I think most are familiar with, with the story of David. Yet it is possible that there could be someone here today that doesn't really know the story that involved his sin. He was a man that was after God's own heart. He was a man who experienced extraordinary blessing. He offers us great and keen insights that are even recorded in the Psalms about the Lord. Yet, in his life, he committed some grievous sins. He lusted after his neighbor's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. Committed adultery with her. And then, in an effort to cover up his adultery, he sent her husband Uriah to the front line in the war. And this was a plot to have her husband killed so that it could be covered up. Time won't permit us to Read the entire account, but if you want to know where it's at, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to write that down, you can go back at at a later point and read all about it. And this account provides us the backdrop to this psalm, and it's why it's recorded. David felt tremendous guilt and shame for what he had done. Have you ever felt tremendous guilt and shame for something you've done? Think about it. They often refer to them as the skeletons in the closet, right? The things that, the sins that we've committed that we're not proud of, right? That that bring tremendous guilt and shame. And for some in the room, it might be the case that some of the, the the more heinous or crazy things that you did were even before Christ. But David was a man of faith when he fell into his sins. And his skeletons in the closet were adultery and murder, grievous sins that weighed very heavy on his heart. Yet the kindness of God led David to repent of his sins and to confess them. And this sets up an amazing contrast in these opening verses for us to see. The result is something that anyone who has ever been forgiven by God knows well. And we can relate to David, who was forgiven. And he's captivated when writing these opening two verses of Psalm thirty two. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And he's speaking in the third person to himself. Doesn't say, How blessed am I, because I am forgiven. So encouraging too. You know, the, the Holy Spirit was was having him record this psalm, so that Pastor John, when he was struggling with his sin, could 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 go and, and, and read this psalm. When, when you struggle with your sin, that you likewise can go and see the blessing of forgiveness recorded. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And we could, we could read those verses all day long. I think that's the fourth time I've already read them. Fifth time I've already read them. They're, they're, they're beautiful. And when we understand the magnitude of our sin, just like David did, we can share in his appreciation for forgiveness. David saw his sin clearly before the Lord. He alludes to God's standards by the words that he uses describing his sins in the opening verses. He calls it transgression, which indicates the stepping over of a known boundary. He calls it Sin, which refers to missing the mark or missing the target. He, he calls it iniquity, which carries the idea of twisting or distorting something. In each case, the thought is the same namely, he failed to live up to God's standard. There's a boundary, there's a target, there's something that is straight and true, but our sin steps over that boundary, our, our sin misses the target. Our sin twists that which is straight. But God's grace to forgive was sufficient for his sin. Notice the three corresponding words that David uses with these words. Verse 1, his transgression is forgiven. His sin is covered. Verse 2, his iniquity was no longer imputed to him. God released him from the debt. God allowed his sin to be covered, out of view. And it, how that took place was through the blood sacrifice that David had to take, according to this dispensation in Israel at this time. He had to offer a sacrifice, a sin offering, and the blood of that offering, the blood of that animal that was sacrificed. And what happened to that animal? What happened to it? It was killed, right? Death hand on it, feeling the life go out of it, feeling the warm blood drip out of it. And the priest would offer, offer it, and, 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 and he felt that. And it was real. And this is what captivated him. We don't see all that in the backdrop, but that's exactly what takes place is, is the life went out of it and as a result it covered his sin it allowed the imputed righteousness to uh, the imputed righteousness of faith to blot out the handwriting of sin's indictment against David and as a result David responds by expressing how blessed he is how blessed I am and the same is true for us By faith our Heavenly Father also does the same for us who have trusted completely in the sacrifice of Christ. For those of us who have been led to the cross and we put our hands on the cross and we've come and and the sacrifice as God's Son lay on that cross and our hand by faith comes to Him. And it's deeply personal, is it not? It is. We get to celebrate it today as the life of as the life flowed out of him, as he breathed his last, that allows us to have life. In his breathing out of his life, in death, it breathed life into us so that we could have life. And we, like David, we should be awestruck. We should be captivated by the fact that it's God's kindness that leads us to the blessings of repentance and confession so that we can enjoy the sweet fruit of God's forgiveness. Like David, we can say that we're blessed. Really, in some ways, we can say that we're more blessed. We experience the fuller blessing in Christ and what he's done for us through the reality of the gospel. David, like Old Testament saints, only had the promise of Christ that was being really set up through the Old Testament sacrificial system, which paved the way for the perfect once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a blessing and benefit that we get to experience in its fullness. And as New Testament Christians, we should be captivated by the cross and all that it stands for. And even this Old Testament psalm, It serves as a reminder to New Testament believers to savor the sweetness of forgiveness that is ours through Christ and the gospel. And we've got to sing about it and rejoice over that forgiveness. And there's not a more appropriate day. We're going to be celebrating communion later on today. What what a way to have our hearts get refocused. We, we, We need to get refocused. We're forgetful people. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Insight number one is this. Be captivated by the blessings of repentance and confession that allow us to experience the the, the fruit and taste the savory fruit of God's forgiveness. Insight number two is this. Don't suffer in silence when you sin. Some burdens are so heavy that they consume all of our strength. There's, There's just weight. There's a gravitas to him. We just, some of them are hard, right? But no burden is heavier than the burden of guilt. And perhaps few people have ever carried a burden heavier than, than King David. And after being captivated and consumed by the blessings of repentance and forgiveness, in the opening two verses, now David recalls the guilt and shame that once consumed him when he kept silent about his sin. The happiness that David was experiencing as he wrote verses one and two is a far cry from that which he had experienced before he would receive forgiveness. It can only be described as agony. After his adultery with Bathsheba and the death of her husband Uriah, Bathsheba, he legally took her to be his wife. She was pregnant and uh, lost, ended up losing the child. As a result, David, you know what? David thought he had covered it all up. He thought he had covered his tracks. But you know what? Uriah's blood called out from the grave. His conscience was, was burdened because of the guilt that he felt as a result of his adultery. And it, it cried out against him every waking moment. And it was accompanied by physical and spiritual suffering. Listen to how he describes it in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. What insight does David have for us? Don't, Don't keep silent about your sin. David's unconfessed sin paved the way for God's hand of discipline. And he even recognizes it in in verse 4 as God's heavy hand, which allowed him to suffer with constant groaning, with, with feeling lethargic and depressed, the sense of being spiritually parched and destitute. All are the handiwork of guilt. And he compares it to being dehydrated physically and spiritually. Literally, it means his life juices were dried up like a summer drought. Anyone ever experienced severe, any hands of severe dehydration? Anyone ever had it happen? Probably in all that crazy MMA training on rolling on the mats and the wrestling and all that stuff. Brian, yeah. Okay, but if you've ever been dehydrated, you you know what happens. Right? You, you're fatigued, are you, are you not? You're broken down. And it can get so bad that your body can even start to cramp up. It's miserable. And the same is true spiritually. We can even cramp up spiritually when we try to conceal our sin. We are not designed to harbor unconfessed sin. Spiritually, as believers, we are not designed to harbor sin. We're not. It needs to be confessed. And by divine design, the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with our conscience, Okay, con, with, science, knowledge. Every person has a conscience. But what unbelievers don't have, and they can actually dull their conscience, and we can as believers, they don't have the Holy Spirit that's residing within that convicts, that allows us to feel the weight and the gravity of that sin that's weighing heavy on our hearts. And is convicting us so that we'll repent of it, confess it, and seek forgiveness. And there are a number of reasons why we may choose to suffer in silence. And in your notes, I provided some for consideration. This is by no means an exhaustive list. But here are ten reasons that I believe are very common. You might have more to add. I probably should have left some blanks so you can write them in. The, the ones but here common reasons believers choose to suffer in silence number one our pride the, the old man is resistant the old man that was with the end the old John Crick uh, the old Victoria Crick the old Jeff Tann, every single one of us that old person is resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit And 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are to clothe ourselves with humility. And humility will allow us not to remain in silence about our sin. We'll we'll be willing to put that that ugly foot forward. You know? You got the good foot, right? You got the the manicured foot. Talked about this before. You got the that your toenails are cut your your feet are clean you got you know not the stinky foot okay everything looked good you're, you, you and maybe you've gone to the beach you've had a summer time and you're just like oh man i need to trim my toenails before we we, we go my feet my feet don't look good well and then w- when that's the case right we we don't want to put that foot forward humility will have us put that foot forward Another reason that we may choose to suffer in silence is, number two, the fear of man. We're concerned about what others might think about us. Like, but, but, what, how, will they, how are they going to view my sin? Wow. Great, Pastor John. You're a pastor, too. You struggle with that? Yeah, I do. I, I'm, I'm, no, I'm wired no different than any man in this church. Struggling with sin and temptation. And Proverbs 29:25 says, "The fear of man brings a snare." It says exactly why it says that. It brings a snare. Why? Because it can, it can uh, be a snare to cover up our sin and, and to conceal it and not to share it. But it says, "But he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. You'll receive the grace. there will be a willingness. Not to remain in silence. Number three. Hardness of heart. Ephesians four seventeen and 18. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. That you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. In the futility of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding. Excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of heart. That's describing unbelievers. Yet in our old man. We, we can function like an unbeliever. We can act like an, an unbeliever. And if, if we're not, um, if, if the word of God, you know, I love using the illustration of the washing of the water, of the word, even husbands for, for wives, but just for believers in general, because that, that water needs to soak. That's, that's what breaks up that hardness of heart so that we don't remain in silence. Reason number four, deception. Sin deceives us. It's no secret. Can you be deceived and know it? You can't, otherwise you wouldn't be deceived. But it happens all the, uh, the time. Jeremiah, what, right? 29, 17, I believe, right? The, our hearts are sick. They're, they're deceitfully wicked. They're, they're, they're deceived. That's why we need Christ. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so this he will also reap. And if we remain in silence about our sin, we are going to reap the consequences about our sin. We're going to reap those consequences. Reason number five, forgetfulness. I don't think I need to spend too much time on this. We're forgetful people. Proverbs 3.1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Reason number six, minimization of sin. We minimize our sin or we think of our sin lightly. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Romans 2, 4 is perfect here. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You know, r- r- right here, that it, it is God's kindness. And whenever we minimize our sin, we minimize God's grace. But when we see our sin for what it is and, and the magnitude of what it is, that allows us to magnify the grace of God and his kindness that leads us to repent of it, repent and confess it, not to remain silent about it. Number seven, rationaliz- rationalizations or excuse making for our sin. I would have never committed that sin if she wouldn't have done that. I would have never done that or responded that way if he didn't do that first. Right? We can rationalize it. Proverbs twelve fifteen. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. We'll, we'll, it's foolish for us to rationalize our sin or to make excuses. We need to own it, so that we can confess it. That we wouldn't remain silent about it. Number eight, procrastination. It's a big one. We're too busy. You know I just it takes time to meditate. it takes time to sit down with God in prayer and to think about th- the ways that i 've sinned uh, that that week. It takes time to sit down with your spouse um, and if you 're like us, oh, sometimes it's even the night before communion <laughs> and and just even asking you know we 're celebrating communion tomorrow is is um is there anything that you you would like to confess? Because here's what I would like to confess. But we get busy. And we, we can lose sight. And as a result, we don't make time to talk about our sin with the Lord. We don't make time to talk about sin with our spouse or with somebody in our care group. And as a result, it can go unconfessed. And Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 says, Do, hey, do not Walk as the unwise, but walk as the wise. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. Right? We need to be efficient and we need to be focused as it relates so that we don't remain silent. Number nine, failure to look intently in the mirror. I don't think yours says intently, but I added intently because James one twenty three twenty four says, it, you know, it's the... the the hearer and the doer of the word that's going to be blessed, right? The one who looks intently into the mirror of God's word. The law of liberty. This man will be blessed in what he does. But if we don't spend time in the word, we don't have access to the mirror spiritually. If we're not even involved in care group or we, we don't go, we don't even have an opportunity for someone to even to ask us questions about how things are going. How's your walk? How's your soul? How are you doing in the Lord? We don't even have the chance. It's complete failure to look intently in the mirror. Number ten, we're comfortable, and this, this, uh, this is a big one, comfortable with unconfessed sin. And this is a dangerous place to be. And praise God that he's even ordained the, the ordinance of communion so that we would be um, called, when we gather as a church and to celebrate it, then it makes us mindful of confession. Proverbs fifteen nineteen says, The way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns. Okay, The way of the, the person who's comfortable, who's complacent, it's a hedge of thorns. It's going to set up roadblocks. Why? Because you're not even going to talk about it. You're not even going to spend, spend time. But what's it say? I love the, 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 the last part of this verse. But the path of the upright is a highway. Right? Following the Lord, it's wide open. Right? We're going to go to him. There's not going to be impediments. Love that verse. Well, King David, we can be sure, was influenced by some of these. And the Lord even sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke him and help David to see his blind spots and his deception. And God does the same for us by providing believers for us. He he provides us Nathans in our care group. He does. He provides us with with people who can help us to see, uh, see our sins. And this is one of the ministry components of care group. And we need to take advantage of the opportunity that it provides to confess our sin and struggles. Don't suffer in silence when the Lord provides a wide open highway. Of, of of having a band of brothers and a band of sisters for you to connect with who are in place that you can call upon your fellow troops and care group to pray for you and to share your sins and temptation. They're there. That's why we're here for each other. We, we want to battle for each other. We're all in the same battlefield. And if you're not faithfully committed to a care group, then it and again, this isn't to lay a guilt trip on anyone who's not in a care group, but you're, you're missing out on a provision of the Lord. You're missing out on a grace gift from the Lord Jesus Christ for your life to help provide accountability and to help you grow in the greatest possible way. You are. You are. And so I, I, just, I just pray, and when we pray often for those that aren't in care groups. You need to be in one. You need to connect. You need the accountability. We desperately need each other. And submission and being subject to one another is a description of the spirit-filled life, which we've talked about in previous sermons. Ephesians 5.21. Be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Now, it could be possible that you're in a care group. Okay, you're already in a care group. But yet, in the environment in which you're in, Maybe, maybe you still find it wanting. Maybe it's, it's lacking a little bit. Maybe you wish that there was somebody was asking you more pointed questions. Or you, you wish that um, you spent more time confessing sin and talking about struggles. Let me offer some encouragement. Cultivate transparency in your care group. Create the spiritual environment that your heart needs. Start it. It's not all up to the care group leader. It, it isn't. It's, it's, it's peer discipleship. We're there together. And, and, you know, I would encourage you to talk to if there is a, a need there, or maybe it's a, a tendency that you've noticed that, that hard questions aren't being asked, that you would just have a chance to talk to your care group leader and just say, hey, I think it would be really good if we partner up at the end and at least have an opportunity just to, to ask each other, you know, some of the hard questions. You can lead by example. And ask the hard questions and cut to the chase. Now, you're thinking, oh, hard questions? What do those look like? Want me to provide some examples? I love our Seal Beach care group. I do. Jonathan and his leadership. It's just, I I love the guys in in our group. And um, their prayers for me. And I know that um, we've we've been blessed by praying for each other. But we partner up at the end of our time. And we take 20 or 30 minutes. Sometimes it goes longer, sometimes it's shorter. Big John Lee is always beating us out to the snacks. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it, snack time always follows right after that. But l- sometimes we take um, a lesson or, or a question straight from the lesson of First John, and sometimes it has nothing to do. And so I want to provide you with uh, qu- questions or give you some examples. What was the greatest temptation in sin that you faced since the last time our care group met? What was the greatest temptation and sin that you faced since the last time our care group met? Or sometimes it flows straight out of the lesson. Tonight in our lesson, we talked about, um, you know, walking in light versus walking in darkness. In what ways have you walked in darkness since the last time we met? I want to pray for you. And and again, you can partner up. You don't have to do this in a group setting, right? You can cultivate that, transparency in what area of your walk do you feel most vulnerable or tempted well these are these are probing questions and you see how they just cut to the chase but this is discipleship this is the 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 reality of what taking place and how we we have blessings and how we can build multiple uh, walls of protection the lord uses it to protect us to protect our hearts And I am confident that if King David were here himself, that he would be blessed to be part of a cornerstone care group, and that he would applaud any ministry that takes the the time to ask the questions that encourage people not to suffer in silence about their sin. And I don't know what that looked like in David's life, but, but... you know, he was a leader, king of Israel. It can be lonely at the top sometimes. Maybe even his own pride didn't want to confess sin because of what people were going to think of him. How can we be more effective in this area? Well, Psalm 32, 1-5 provides three insights on repentance and confession so that you enjoy the sweet fruit of forgiveness. Insight number one, be captivated. By the blessings of repentance and confession. Insight number two, don't suffer in silence when you sin. Insight number three, confess your sins for forgiveness. How did David move from the burden of guilt to the freedom of forgiveness? How did he move from the weight and the magnitude and the gravity of his sin to the sweet and savory fruit of God's forgiveness? forgiveness. He leaves no doubt about his answer. Look at what David writes in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. I want you to notice all the action verbs that are in verse 5. I acknowledged, I did not hide, I confessed, and the direct object to each of these verbs are the same three words for sin that David used in verses 1 and 2. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge missing the mark. I no longer hid from when I twisted or distorted the truth. I didn't hide from my iniquity anymore. I confess that I stepped over a known boundary. And here David is taking responsibility for his sin. And for those of you who are going to be joining us for second hour, we're actually going to uh, get real practical now as we talk about how do people change? Okay? In, in, in discipleship, in, in discipleship counseling, how do people change? And this is a critical component to change. We must take responsibility for our sin. And this is what true confession is. We acknowledge our sin, we don't hide it or conceal it, and we confess it just as God would see it. What does it mean to confess our sin? Here's what one commentator shared. It means to agree with God about them. Before David came to the point of confession, he and God were on opposite sides of the fence. God was condemning his sin, and he was defending himself by rationalizing and excusing his sin. When he finally came to the point of confession, David stopped fighting against God. He, as it were, walked over to God's side of the fence and stood with God and joined him in condemning his own sin. And what did God do? How did God respond? So beautiful. One more action verb in verse 5. You, God, forgave the guilt of my sin. David moved from the burden of guilt to the blessing of forgiveness through his confession. And you know what? I. I, I I know there are plenty of the people in the room that can join me, whether it's been with your spouse or been with somebody where there's just been a major breakdown in the relationship, maybe even with a family member. I mean, you had an absolute blowout, you know, gloves thrown off argument, and it got ugly, right? And really, really, really bad, and you felt the weight of that, right? And it weighed so heavy on your heart, and yet you go to God, you acknowledge your sin to him, and then, because you've transgressed against this person, we're going to talk about this in just a moment, but you went to them and you asked forgiveness, and it was lifted, right? Just the relief, the, the, the sense of relief that it provides. Well, the same relief, relief that came to David through confession is available to all of us. The Apostle John declares that if we confess our sin, right? First John 1, 9... Most of our care groups are already beyond this. If you're not, <laughs> you need to pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, 1 John 1, nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we, we praise God. You don't need a Catholic priest. You don't need anything or anyone else to go to. You go to God with your confession. And you lay it all out on the line and say, God, this is what I've done. Will you forgive me for the sins that I have committed? When we sin as believers, even though at the moment of our salvation and our conversion, right, we ask God for forgiveness for all of our past, present, and future sins, and God graciously offers us a pardon at that time, he still desires He still requires, actually let me just say it that way, he desires and requires that we confess our sins as they occur. Why? Why? It's so that the unity and the fellowship through the testimony of the church can be maintained. That's why. And and our sin, um, as, it, as it occurs, it impacts our unity and fellowship with God. Sin quenches the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine. And when, I'm in, when I talk about this in counseling, I often refer to the regular confession of sin like getting oil changes in your car. What happens if you don't change the oil in your car? <laughs> All right? You just keep running it forever. It's not good. It's not good. In fact, you'll experience a a major, major internal breakdown in the engine of your car. And the same is true spiritually when we confess our sin regularly. God has it factored into our spiritual maintenance. And when we're faithful to confess our sins, we're not being asked to be redressed in a a new righteousness, but rather we're being renewed in the imputed righteousness that is already ours in Christ. Okay, Good good to, to see that. It's, it's the foot washing of, uh, of the Christian life, of, of being caught up in a, a broken and, and fallen world. Insight number three is for us to confess our sins for forgiveness, and we need to do this regularly just like oil changes in the car. This, again, is where the, the ministry of care group provides a great outlet for us. Well, in your notes, you'll notice that I've included two statements that are there that um, I thought would be good for us to consider so that we can distinguish between what sins need to be confessed to God and what sins need to be confessed to people. Statement number one, all sins are against God. Statement number two, some sins are against people. Let's talk about all sins being against God. David even emphasizes this in a parallel psalm. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 provide the same backdrop and the same circumstances of life for David it's considered a sister psalm and in psalm 5134 David writes for i know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have i sinned okay he says th- th- those words so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when when you judge David recognized that first and foremost that his sin was against God and that's where his confession needs to be directed. And it's the same is true for us. That's, where, that's our starting place. That's where we need to begin too. We need to make sure that we go vertical to the Lord to acknowledge our sin and our confession. Now, those familiar with David's story also know that his sin did impact other people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. Some would even argue that he sinned against his men in the army by what he did by sending him to the front line. And even in the broader context, some might even argue that he sinned against the nation of Israel because of his failure in leadership. He, in some ways, betrayed the whole nation. So this leads to the second phrase, some sins are against people. And it just happens that, with David's story, that the offenses that he committed were both against God and, and man. Now, uh, a careful just if you're wondering why it says that in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned um in in the psalm he's speaking hyperbole hyperbo- hyperbo- hyperbole hyperbolically okay that's what i was trying to say um, he is and then it goes in sin my mother conceived me right it's a picture right and 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 he wants this picture to be painted strong so that we see and and, and emphasizes for the purpose that we we see the magnitude of our sin against god first that's that's the reason why it says that But David was also aware that his sin, he committed sin against other people. And if you want to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, you can actually read about Nathan when Nathan comes to him to call him out on his sin and describes this amazing story. And David's like, that man deserves to die. And and Nathan's like, "Uh, yeah, he does. Um, That man's you. Yeah. David's like, wow. He realized then that he had sinned against the lord and that he had sinned against other people when he saw the reality of his sin so when we sin against another person we need to repent and confess that sin to maintain unity and fellowship with those we have offended and we get instructions on how to do this in matthew 18. Uh, it provides us with instruction for the offended brother or sister on how they can approach the sinning person now in your bulletin I put a unity flow chart in there, and I was so thankful I looked at the bulletin and, and the notes before I came up. And there's supposed to be arrows in between uh, these things right after the parentheses, and instead it looks like I don't know, I did something to the font. It looks like a letter A, OK? So you just have to take your pen if you have one, or just imagine an area, an era, area, an arrow where, uh, over that thing that symbol that looks like the letter A. But this is good for us to see because I wanted to help you guys see where confession fits into the big picture. Okay, So it starts with repentance. There's a a godly sorrow in our hearts because of sin that we've committed. And then this leads to confession, the offender taking responsibility for their offense. And sometimes we know that we've sinned, and we take the responsibility right away, and we take it up. But sometimes we're blind to it because our sin's deceptive. And so it's going to evol- involve the offended party to come and to, to point out our sin to us. Confession means we take responsibility, and then this opens up the door for forgiveness. The offended party releases the offender from the debt. Okay? Good picture of that later on in Matthew 18 and covered that passage when we preached on forgiveness before. There, there's a debt that w- was owed as a result of our sin, and we get released from that debt. And this leads to reconciliation. Unity and fellowship is restored. And next Sunday, we're going to look at the remaining verses that reveal David's counsel on confession that offer even more practical guidance for us today, um, or next week. Um, so, here we are. And I'm on time. I can't believe it. It's It's happening. Our, our passage today provided three insights on repentance and confession so that you enjoy the sweet fruit of forgiveness. Insight number one, be awestruck by the blessings of repentance and confession. Insight number two, don't suffer in silence when you sin. Insight number three, confess your sins for forgiveness. Now I want to close with this story, really powerful. It's about uh, Mary Todd, uh, who was married to Abraham Lincoln. And this is what it says near the end of Irving Stone's powerful novel, Love is Eternal, about Mary Todd and Abraham Lincoln. There's a moving conversation between Mrs. Lincoln and the president's bodyguard, Parker, who had been summoned to Mrs. Lincoln's room after Lincoln was shot. Why were you not at the door to keep the assassin out, she demanded. With head bowed, Parker replied, I have bitterly repented, but I did not believe that anyone would try to kill so good a man in such a public place. The belief made me careless. I was attracted by the play and did not see the assassin enter the box. You should have seen him. You had no business to be careless. With this, Mrs. Lincoln fell back on her pillow, covered her face with her hands, filled with deep emotion. She then said, go now. It's not you I can't forgive. It's the assassin. Lincoln's son, Tad, who had spent that miserable night beneath his father's desk in the executive office, responded with his drawl to his mother. If Paul had lived, he would have forgiven the man who shot him. Paul forgave everybody. The comment is reminiscent of another who having given his all to reveal love, one who was rejected by his own and killed by those who should have protected him. Yet in the agonies of death, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May the testimony of our lives always be marked by savoring the sweetness of forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And may we always be captivated by his example, as well as the insights that we've gleaned today from Psalm 32. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads right now, and as we prepare our hearts even for communion second hour, we rejoice in you because you've provided this psalm, a psalm for the ages, a a psalm that, a psalm for sinners. I just want to thank you personally Father in the presence of others just for the grace gift that it's been to me and how you've used it to minister to my own heart and I pray that as we proclaimed it, as we preached it today as we studied it that it encouraged every heart here. That you would allow those of us who have trusted completely in Christ to have our hearts prepared for communion, that we would see the magnitude of your forgiveness. We thank you for the gift of confession. We thank you for your kindness that has indeed led our hearts to repentance. Father, we just, like David, we're awestruck and we want to be captivated by that reality. I thank you for being at a church that holds the gospel high and has a high view of Christ as a result, Father. We celebrate him and what he's done. And we ask, Father, that if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, that today could be the day of salvation, that they would fall on their face and seek you for forgiveness, that you would grant them a heart of repentance and faith, and that you would lead them to even confess their sins this day, and that they would turn from a life of living without you, and that they would turn and trust in Christ and walk with him from this day forward. Lord, thank you for this time. We ask that you'll bless our celebration of communion and our our study on how people change. We look forward to seeing how you encourage our hearts even more this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.